today on an all-new episode of the Enneagram Journey. I mean, you got used to Lily's loud chewing, right? <laughs> Lily doesn't chew loudly. Dude. Come on, this isn't news. <laughs> Think about it. Oh, man. Honestly, dude, that's the meanest thing you've ever done to me. Well, I really thought you knew. We had ribs the other night. It sounded like Jurassic Park. <laughs> you know what? It doesn't matter. But it did. <laughs> What's in that cereal besides dried twigs and small animal bones? What's that supposed to mean? Lily, I love you, but honest to God, when you eat, it sounds like a garbage disposal full of drywall screws. What's the matter with you? Joey, do they know that we know? No. Joey? They know you know. Oh, I knew it! I would say, thank God, everybody knows. It's finally over, but that hasn't been working for me. Oh, I cannot believe those two. They thought that they could mess with us. They're trying to mess with us. <laughs> they don't know that we know they know we know. Joey, you can't say anything. Wouldn't if I wanted to. All you need is love. Bum ba da ba ba bum. How's it going? Welcome to the Anagram Journey podcast. My name is Joel. Reading some of the lyrics to that song, it is a perfect fit for today's conversation. There's nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. That sounds very Enneagram-ish. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. Josh and Suzanne are going to talk about that today. Josh who? Enneagram 3, Joshua Graves. Author of The Simple Secret, Choosing Love in a Culture of Hostility. You can find Josh at Otter Creek Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And you know you can find The Simple Secret on Amazon and the quick link to that in the show notes. Before we get to today's conversation, clear your calendars for Anagram Bootcamp 2024, Thursday, August 1st through Saturday, August 3rd. Last year's bootcamp is going to be hard to top. We had such an incredible time, but I know that collectively we can do it. It'll be live at the Grove in Dallas, same location as last year, and we will have an online option as well. The topic you ask, I don't know. But as soon as I do, you the listeners will know. For sure, you'll be the first ones to hear about it. For now, let's just all plan to meet in Dallas, August 1st through August 3rd. We wouldn't be able to have boot camp, other workshops, cohorts, etc. without you. LTM is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry, and your donations help us to keep workshops and resources affordable as well as fund scholarships for the cohort program, teaching events, and the maintenance and upkeep of the MICA Center. You can find a link to contribute in the show notes. And of course, visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com and theanygramjourney.com. Now, let's join my man Josh and Suzanne. Golly, it's been too long since we've reported, recorded a podcast together. Uh, this book that you've written is a perfect reason to do so. I just like you a lot, and I always have. And I, I feel I think, the same way. I like you. you Thank you. And I think part of the reason is that I've always found you to be literally on the growing edge of understanding yourself as a three and doing something about it. Mm. In relationship to the book, so The Simple Secret is the title, and we'll put that in other places. But in relation to the book, I just want to say that it never occurred to me that an Enneagram 3 could write such a vulnerable book about love. Hmm. 
Well, um, you know, we all have different versions of ourselves. And I think it's pretty normal and natural to recognize, or at least to come to some awareness, that we have different versions of ourselves. Uh, Threes obviously especially live in that reality, whether they come to know it or not. Um, I think a couple of things. I think, number one, um, I think being a pastor has given me a front row seat to people's shadow sides in a way that has essentially forced me to deal with my own. When you see, and I, I know Joe has has lived this in the pastorate, but when you see somebody in one week live out their best selves and their worst selves, and it's just Tuesday, mm-hmm. it does force you to kind of reflect on the human condition in a, in a way that all believers probably do. It's just when you're in ministry, it forces you to do it quickly early on. And then you're visiting those folks in the hospital or you're doing their funeral. And so you kind of add the layer of death and mortality to all of that. And I think um, the opportunity consistently presents itself to deal with it, Mm -hmm. to deal with the shadow sides and to deal with the fact that life is short and we're all going to die. And you really can't take your trophies with you. it, It turns out. Um, I think that probably was working in my favor in a way I didn't even know it when I chose or when ministry chose me. I, I have no idea what you're going to ask me, and this is fun. So this is uh, this is that's a great opener. All right. Well, here's a here's a little step back in time for you and me. Okay. Responding to what you just said, um, at your invitation, you and I spent uh, part of a couple of days with two human beings, um, just the four of us. Mm. And their relationship was very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I can remember thinking at the time, this is what, this is what Josh and Joe and other pastors deal with all the time. And I have just recently gone back to read some of my old journals. I journaled about that day. And one of the things I said in the journal entry was, I can remember thinking, okay, this one is the, the good one. And this one is the mean one. And then 10 minutes later, no, 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 it's this one. That's the mean (laughs) one. And this one, that's the good one. And then, oh, oh no, (laughs) they're both mean. (laughs) And I also had in the journal entry that you said to me, walking in, uh, I promise you, this is not going to be what you think it is. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I think I made two promises to you. I think that was the first one. And the second one was, and you will deserve every dollar that they pay you for your time, whatever that happens to be. Yes. And it was more than I, in those days than I got paid for my time. And it was, I did deserve it. The, the point being, you just said that in the same week, you can see somebody at their best. I'm not sure exactly the words and at their worst. And we had that intensely yeah. in that time. And I thought people are so complicated and their vulnerability to one another frequently determines their response, which is influenced by their Enneagram number. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of my big epiphanies during COVID as a three who happens to be a senior pastor of a church is it wasn't a typical response of, of what someone might predict of, Oh, where has my audience gone? Or, you know, those kind of performance related. It was uh, the realization that my, um, my subtype being a sexual three was actually my, my dominant subtype, if I'm using the right language, it was very helpful for me during COVID because while I lost having the people in the room, I didn't lose interpersonal conversations or dynamics. I mean, it certainly changed, 
that was that's always been the lifeblood of ministry for me. It's not Saturday night thinking, oh, these 2,000 people are going to hear this great story that I'm going to tell tomorrow. It's what Sunday morning leads to. So for my particular, you know, calling, my favorite part of Sunday is the text message that says, hey, when you told that story about your dad taking you fishing when you were a boy, it unwrapped all these things for me. Would you be willing to sit down? Like that for me is the moment because people let you into these little sacred caves that they have in their soul and they don't let many people in. And that's why you're stewarding sacred ground with people. Um, and so I would just encourage your listeners if they haven't done their subtype work, uh, it, this is an overstatement, but it's almost not even worth trying to learn your number if you're not going to learn the next part of it, because it just, it's like going from watching sports in black and white to HD. Like it's just a whole different experience. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I've lived with that part of motives and what, what makes us tick over the last few years. Yeah, one of the things I'm finding when I teach subtypes is how many persons are a little bit confused because their subtype changed during COVID. Ooh. Almost 100%, not that high, 80%, I would say, to self-preserving. Wow. wow. That is, I need to sit with that. That is really interesting. You remember 10 years ago, Joe had a heart attack? Mm -hmm. And uh, I was in Austin on my way back to... He had drove himself to the hospital and uh, my subtype changed and I'd never heard anybody talk about that or read anything about that. And it was a real surprise to me. And I went from social to sexual and we ended up in therapy. Oh, you know, we go to therapy anyway, just because we right. think everybody needs to. But right. it, it was such a dramatic change in our relationship that it required some serious attention. When I used to work with couples they would come to me saying it's our number difference that's a problem. And it wasn't, it was a subtype difference. Right. Yeah. Like my wife is a self-pres one. And so a sexual three and a self-pres one is putting, it's putting the puzzle pieces together very differently than if you just said, well, you're a one and a three married, you're both high achievers, both organized, both, no, 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 no. It's there's more, way more going on below the surface. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, Joel's had some sub wife subtype interesting experiences as a seven and one. He's a seven married to a one. Mm -hmm. I don't know enough about subtypes to. I know Suzanne recently was teaching the cohort subtypes, something like that. Uh, and I was walking out the door and I was like, well, I don't know my subtype, but Whitney, who's gone through your cohort, yeah. You know, she had some thoughts and about your uh, subtype, about, yeah, <laughs> in very one fashion. So, one of the things yeah. that y'all just brought up about subtype difference is one of the quotes that I've I pulled from the book, from your book that I really liked. Of perhaps relationships are challenging because you have different expectations of what the relationship needs to be. Expectations are the seeds of resentment, and when two people bring different understanding of the intent of marriage, resentment, like cancer, takes over the body of the relationship seriously hampering life, vitality, and connection. And I go back, I don't know if this was related to subtypes or whatever. I mean, I bet it includes everything. When Whitney and I were having uh, probably like the toughest part of our still very young marriage, uh, this was yeah. probably four years ago-ish, she was very unhappy with how I was living life with her. I was like, I don't understand how you can be unhappy with this, that... Like, here's what, here's how I'm spending my time. Here's what my days are look, looking like. Here's what I do with our family and stuff. And one of the things that she pointed out is that, um, the relationship with me and the, and the kids and the core of the family or the, our family as a whole versus my relationship with just her individually. Right. And that, then we just weren't connecting on, on that and that understanding. And there, there was a big deal that. That sent us to therapy. So. You both started with children. Right. That's a that's a critical dynamic to it. I have a friend who says, I'm a way better dad than I am a husband. And he doesn't say that like, hey, I get a pass. He's saying it in self-awareness of, I have to be 
weekly more intentional with my relationship with my wife than I do with my kids. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever read Robin Kristen Bell's book, Zimzum of Love, but I think it's fabulous because he talks about relationships from a subatomic particle perspective, meaning in every relationship that you have with a stranger to your best friend or your lover, there is an energy exchange and the inner energy exchange is dynamic. So it, it it changes over time, right? The the vibe, the feeling. Sometimes you can feel so close to someone. I can't live without you. And then the next week, I can't live with you. That's why, you know, romance is the subject of 80% of all the music that's ever been written. But in that, in that uh book, the bells talk about kind of how we steward the energy between us, whoever the us is. And why uh, mindfulness and things like the Enneagram are gospel, because they're helping us to pay attention to what actually is happening. And so, uh, you know, I think what marriage has taught me, I mean, all relationships have taught me, but marriage is just the most intense of the ones I've experienced, is that uh, two people can be experiencing the same reality in very different ways, the same situation. And uh, that self-awareness that Suzanne was talking about is so critical so that we can humble ourselves to let somebody tell us, you know, I, I you're not always the greatest person to be married to. My wife recorded me the other day eating cereal. <laughs> and then later and then later in the day, she sent it to me and she did not mean it mean spirited, but she was like. I just want you to see yourself in a way that you don't like you should hear how you eat cereal. It's truly unbelievable. And when she sent it to me, I was like, this video is edited. This is doctored. There is no way that is me eating. This is AI deep fake kind of, you know, is there a way for us all to get this video just so we can weigh in. Yeah, I- we'll post it in the podcast. <laughs> Uh, it was so embarrassing. You send it, we will. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. But it was a great humorous example of uh, Kara is not experiencing me the way, same way I'm experiencing me. Did you ever watch the show? Uh, it was called How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. Yeah. They did this thing one time. There was an episode about uh, like the quirks about your partner or your friend that you don't realize that other people can see, you know, maybe it's a serial thing. And one of them, <laughs> I guess one of them is a loud eater. And so yeah. they're eating. She was like, are you, it sounds like your uh, drywall screws going through a vacuum or something <laughs> like that while he's eating cereal. It is uh, interesting how we, we, uh, we accommodate things when we love somebody. Right. J- Joe, when he eats Fritos and dip, Chews the Fritos at the back of his mouth with his mouth open. I finally said to him about two years ago, do you just like to hear the crunch? Like, what is the entertainment value here? Interesting. His response was, I don't know what you're talking about, and I'm not going to change it. Uh, I can't imagine I how self-conscious I would be if I'd eating a bowl of cereal and knew that it was on camera. I, I think I would change everything about how I eat my cereal. Oh man. Yeah. I have visualized myself eating cereal as we've had this conversation. I'm ready to move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lead us. Uh, chapter four. Uh, it's titled loving myself. I have given myself a pass on loving parts of myself until I read this. I think for different Enneagram numbers, lo- loving yourself is very mm-hmm. tricky. Mm-hmm. Your number would be one of the hardest ones. Mm-hmm. Is it? Uh, I almost apologize for my answer, but it's true. The answer is no. But the reason is, and I talk about this in the book at a few different places, I did not realize until I turned 40 years old that my internal voice and the voice I have always ascribed to God is the voice of my father. And for the first 20 years of my life, that was an ideal, amazing, nourishing, flourishing, encouraging conversation. And the reason I even hesitate 
to answer it honestly is I know that a lot of people have not had that experience. Mm -hmm. So the, the ability to be gracious to myself flows right from a dad who was had a lot of expectations, but was very gracious to me. And again, it wasn't until I turned 40 doing kind of the David Brooks, second mountain work, Richard Rohr, second falling upwards, all that kind of stuff that I realized that I have had an easier internal journey than some because my dad protected me from those voices of shame and guilt. Um, there was conviction, there was challenge in our family, but it wasn't shame and guilt. Um, so the self-love thing, um, like my Cara loves to say, boy, Josh loves him some him. Like <laughs> he, uh, he is very comfortable with himself being by himself, giving himself an encouraging pep talk. And when you really boil it down for me, it goes back to my family system. Now, my dad did not have that experience with his father. So he was breaking a cycle. Um, so I'm aware of how quickly it can turn and quickly it can change. And, you know, Kurt Thompson's really helped me to understand um, it. Do, it does. It, of course, I have shame. Like there's shame growing in every garden. <laughs> every garden has shame growing in it. But um, I'm, I'm able to be uh, patient with myself when I stumble into those shame portions of the soul because of the voice ascribed from my dad. I have a couple of things to say about that, and I'm going to come back to the shame piece in a minute. But one of the things that I have noticed always in you is you're very gentle. And hmm. even when you're being directive, you're very gentle. Hmm. And I, too, realize that not everybody had the parenting that we had. My parents were very affirming and all, all the same things. Uh, that you said and I'm hoping that as privileged males learn more about their feelings hmm. they identify more with people from their family who gave them gentle love as opposed to tough and be strong and all that. I'm teaching yeah. a, an Annie Raman family systems cohort now with uh, Andy Stoker, who's a family systems wise guru. And he says so frequently, the system is bigger than the person. Hmm. And I don't often hear somebody who can say the system is bigger than me. And what I got from it was positive because it's often the system's bigger than I am and I can't fix it. That's right. Yeah. So that's very cool to hear. Do you know why or how your dad broke that or reversed that uh, feedback loop from his dad to him and then from him to you? That's a really good question. Um, and I haven't spent enough time thinking about it i've kind of just accepted it but never asked why um my, my my uh initial response would be when he felt when my father felt called to go into ministry i think he was exposed to some family systems kinds of conversations where he had he had uh the awakening that we all have in, in if we're fortunate to have formal training of any kind. Right. And I also think there's just something about his spirit. Uh, he's an, he recognizes uh, he's an, a nine on the Enneagram. Um, by the way, I gravitate to all the nines in our church. And I think it's because of my dad. Oh. Like when I have a nine, it's like peanut butter and jelly, man. They're just my favorite. My nines are my favorite, favorite people. Um, so I think he he was exposed enough to some family system stuff um, and then just has a gentle way about himself as a nine, inclusive to the core. I mean, we had people living with us all the time. <laughs> just the table always had to get bigger for my dad. Just make more room. Just 
that I just, I just kind of, that goodness leaked all over me. Um, and, and I think, you know, when he thought about his father who grew up very poor, uneducated, um, hardworking, really devoted kind of loyal person who didn't have some of the tools, I think he probably recognized that general gen- generational decision that all of us have to make, which is, okay, um, I can't measure myself by my father, I have to measure myself by how far my father moved our family forward. So like, just like for me with my three sons, I can't measure myself by my dad necessarily. I have to look at how far he moved things in his best spirit to do. I have to do that for my son. So it's going to look different, but it's the same energy. It's the same goal. It's the same intent. Um, That's kind of how we pay it forward. So that's probably where he was coming from. But I, I actually would like to ask him now that you've said it that directly. I haven't I haven't given that a ton of thought. The other thing would be my, the, my mother's story. So my mother grew up in, a, in an alcoholic and abusive home um, where there was verbal and physical violence. And just in the last five or six years has really come to grasp with, with the death of her parents, the way that she was impacted. I think the story she was telling herself is that God just put this bubble around her and protected her. And I think she's just now, since they died, realized um, in some ways how hard their death was, but what a relief it was. Um, In fact, Suzanne, she read that chapter, Loving Myself, and wrote me probably the the most um, heartbreaking but tender text message she's ever written me in my life about um, how healing it was to hear her son talk about self-love, knowing the family system that she had come from, because for her, that is the Super Bowl. Like the fact that I don't have any of the baggage that she has, having watched an alcoholic father quit drinking but never did the 12 steps, which in some ways was worse. We call it dry drunk. We've all been around them. But dry drunks are worse because at least... Drunk drunks, you know, they have some really great moments. Right. Yes, they do. <laughs> There's like something to hold on to, you know, right. but dry drunks are just pissed all the time. <laughs> um, so because he never did that, that's my other grandfather. He never did that soul work. So my mother's admission to me after she had read that chapter, it really softened me in that moment just to recognize the burdens that we we all carry deep within our souls and most of us really are trying to do the best. Yeah. And I think we do our best when we can really believe and inhabit the truth that we are lovable, mm-hmm. regardless of all, all the things. Yeah. That in any given moment, we are lovable and love worthy. That's right. That's where Christian theology has gone off the rails from atonement theory to. Right relationships uh, when, when God told Jesus in his baptism you're my son it wasn't because he was a great teacher no. it wasn't because he performed miracles it's because Jesus came from him yeah that's it yep that's it yeah there's a lot to understand in the world uh, our youngest son BJ and his husband are adopting out of the foster system mm. and the stories that we're hearing are I, I can only wonder as I am more, uh, I'm approached more and more because of talking about my own adoption by people who were adopted or people who were fostered. And I can only wonder how some of those children are able to come out of that experience ever believing that they're worthy of love and yeah. somehow learning to love themselves. It's a hard enough task for those of us who had a really good stable home where we were well loved in spite of all the stuff that parents don't get right. And I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm a little jaded about how we treat our children in our culture. I think at this point, you know, the little bit I understand about attachment theory has been revelatory for me. This idea that every baby is born into the world, looking for someone looking for them 
I, I saw that up close and, and personal the first time I went to Russia and then uh, Ukraine and Siberia and the dramatic effects that institutionalization has had on children generationally because, quote, they were going to keep religion out of, you know, those those experiences. And the only the only <laughs> is as toxic as religion can be and as as much as we've messed it up. And one of the things that we have done well is reminding the world of how sacred children are and how worthy they are to have someone looking for them, because the truth is, when we're 44, like I am, I'm still moving in the world looking for someone looking for me. Like that's, that is part of having the image of God stamped in us. And the reason why conversations like this are sacred and, and the work that you and Joe do at your center training people is we're teaching each other how to look well, how to look well at each other and how to move towards each other in gospel ways that actually create flourishing and hope and forgiveness and all of these great virtues of, of the Jewish and Christian faith. First time I heard Kurt Thompson talk about uh, being born into the world, looking for someone who's looking for us. It was at a Telemachus event, which we have both mm. participated in a number of times. And I, I just literally fell apart. I had to get up and leave and he came and found me. And I had no idea that that one sentence could be so powerful in my life. And, um, yeah, it's a, that's a big sentence. Well, can you expand on that a little bit? You said that as a 44 year old, you're still doing that. Yeah, I think, um, again, I'm not speaking in psychology or theology right now. I'm just speaking as a human, (laughs) like, um, what shame does is shame is the ultimate liar right so shame shame encourages us to isolate ourselves whether it's i hate these people's politics or if they knew about my pornography addiction or if they knew that i whatever it is like shame says yes you have that and you need to remove yourself as much as you can you need to hide and so we're carrying this paradox inside of us, which is this propensity towards isolation, but this innate desire that's within all of us to be connected, skin to skin, a hug, a kiss, uh, you know, eye contact, sharing a joke with someone, sharing a drink with somebody like that's actually what it means to be alive as a human being is to be connected and what's been so interesting like in the recovery work we do in our church i think between both of our campuses right now we have 28 different recovery meetings aanasa is all of these psychologists are telling us that's the most important thing to help people in their recovery now there's several things that are important but the most important thing is human connection if i walk into this room is there a, is there someone who wants me to be there? Is there someone who sees me? Um, and and so what's true in the recovery community is true everywhere because it's a human thing. It's not an addiction thing, right? And the human thing is we're all walking into every bar, every church service, every chat room, every text message, and what we're actually wondering is, does this person see me? Right. Yeah. Wow. That's Henry now. I mean, Henry Nowen is my teacher on that, right? Such a prolific writer, that man. Hmm. He wrote a lot. He he did say a lot. Philip Yancey said he wrote a lot of books. Some of them were good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, the ones that are the best are where he nuances the one the things he wrote in the book before that one. <laughs> and then true. they just get more and more poignant. Yeah. So what was three paragraphs is now a sentence. Yeah. Yeah. He's and he's he's a wonderful example of what we're talking about because you know, after he died, um, it was, it was revealed that he was gay yeah. and most of the world did not know that. I mean, it shouldn't have mattered one way or the other, but what it did is it highlighted, uh, he had this intensity about him that people misunderstood. And after he died, some of his closest friends told stories about, you know, four hour phone calls from, 
Argentina back to New York City or Toronto, wherever he was living at the time, because he had this intense need to be seen. But we in the world benefited from that pain that he suffered because that's he poured all of that into his writing to say, we're all looking to be connected. We all want to be seen. We don't need a thousand friends, but we need three. Like we've got to have a team of people who actually see us and know us and still call us beloved. And he was not only a two on the Enneagram, but he was for sure a sexual two. And that that is just, that's a that's, lot, that's Joe right. tells me. <laughs> <laughs> on a regular basis. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. With, with using him as an example, he's a two, you're a two, you're a three, all heart-centered. I agree with everything that you said. Like, there's no... I'm not pushing back against anything. Sure. And my experience though of experience or practice of what you're saying, I think comes off so, so different than y'all's, you know, how just relational y'all are and almost actively, like you said, actively looking for, for the connection. Whereas mm -hmm. I, I don't really do that in the same, in the same light. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And you are a really good husband and dad and son. Mm. There is no doubt that your children know when they are with you that they are looking for you and you are looking for them. And mm. they know it all the time. Yeah. I think it's harder to believe the older you get that somebody is looking for you. And hmm. so I can see why you and Whitney would struggle with her wanting this more intense thing with just the two of you. And I can confess or, or whatever it is. I would hate for dad to know I used the word confess. <laughs> I can admit that my intensity about seeing him is sometimes just too much for him because he's a nine on the Enneagram. And, you know, I just grab him and make him be intense with me. <laughs> and I'm sure he's faking half the time, but I don't care. <laughs> I remember the, the keyword, the buzzword that Whitney was saying all the time, specifically during that stretch of time when we were struggling, was uh, not feeling connected. We're not connected. And I was like, baby, we're, we're connected. We're married. We're here. We're, we, we bought furniture together. Like, <laughs> Yeah. We're connected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It must so, and be. There's definitely some gender. There's gender dynamics. There's yeah. personality. There's there's all of that stuff. But obviously the sign of health was that she could be honest with you about it. Oh, yeah. Now, she's super healthy. Now we got a real relationship, right? Okay. Now we're doing this thing now. This is real. Yeah. It's like, yeah. we've got a therapist. I've got a therapist. I've got a therapist. It, I, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think orientation of time has so much to do with all of this. I'm right. for some reason I'm zeroed in again on orientation of time and how important it is in relationships. Mm -hmm. On that with you. Yeah. Over the past year or so, especially with some of the work at LTM and stuff. Yeah. I'll tell you too. I think one of the things that three sevens and eights and other numbers have more than me is logic. You know, in all the things we're talking about, there's a point where you have to be able to be logical to see something for what it really is. Hmm. And aggressive hmm. numbers are, are logical. And I, on the Enneagram, have no access to logic. I don't have, hmm. so I'm not, I'm illogical. And Joe and Joel, because I spend the most time with the two of them, of the people in our family, say to me, that's just not logical. Hmm. And I think, okay, so what's your point? <laughs> <laughs> like, I really think that. I get it from the other side, though, also from you and Whitney, of like, guess what? It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't right. have to be logical. This right. is what it is. So I've got, a, a, there's the, you know, like you said, that the gospel is, is both and that yeah. the gospel is not either or. And it's like, mm -hmm. there's space for 
for yeah. both. Yeah, true. Always. That's always true. What hmm. you got? What do you think is different than in writing this book now? Why didn't you write it 20 years ago? What do you think changed in that time period? Absolutely. I, I think we're always changing, evolving, understanding ourselves. I think COVID not only revealed a lot, but it sped a lot of things up. Um, so things that were probably going to happen just happened faster. For, and not all of that's good and not all of it's bad. It just is. Um, but I think for me, I mean, very practically for this book, I was trying, like a lot of pastors, to hold uh, a very socially, politically diverse church together through a very charged, politically charged six-year run from Trump's uh, election, the, the, the one he won and the one he lost, and then COVID and Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and everything that we have seen socially and politically. Um, so I, I think um, on one hand, being incredibly sad about the spiritual immaturity of people, like this is really where we are. And it's like, yeah, it, it, it really is. But also being incredibly hopeful that Jesus might be more relevant today than he has been at any point in my lifetime. And he's always been relevant, but he, the, the red letters of Jesus feel more relevant to me right now than they ever have, because he was just so fundamentally different than the tribes that we have in American culture. Um, and then you kind of couple that with the, with the uh, Richard Rohr idea of the second half of life is a very different journey than the first half of life. And the things that made you successful in the first half are not the things that you need in the second half. Um, I feel like in my late thirties, that's when the, uh, the mystic tradition within Christianity became very appealing to me. So typically, you know, in your twenties and thirties, you have people who are driven by beliefs, right? Beliefs, the orthodoxy group, right. That wants to, police everybody and every denomination has their version of this or you have people who are driven by right practice uh, uh, these would be like um, either moral puritans or social justice warriors to use an expression and I think in my late 30s I started to really feel compelled to the mystics of the Christian tradition who said who say it's more important to ask yourself how you see than it is to ask yourself what you believe and how you live. That Christianity, this is Merton, right? That Christianity is essentially a religion of the imagination. How do you see creation? How do you see yourself? How do you see your neighbor? How do you see your enemy? Because only when you see other humans like Jesus saw, will you get right belief and you will get right practice. So practice and belief still matter, but the mystics kind of invite you into this much more contemplative stance of always asking the question of Christian imagination. Um, and so that's probably what's different in me the last seven or eight years of my life is I'm just way more interested in how I see than I am belief and action. And, you know, I, th I still think belief and action matter. I'm raising three boys at home right now. So <laughs> I still care about those things. But the deepest waters are how we see. Yeah. Do you agree with the Enneagram teaching that you can never change how you see? All you can do is change what you do with how you see? Yes, in the sense of I do think the Enneagram is so wise in, in its understanding that we have these default narratives that we run to. But I would also say, and Suzanne, you're the one who taught me this, that it's super helpful year three of learning the Enneagram to hear someone like you say, I remember you spent all this time learning and reading your books and Richard Rohr, but your Enneagram number is actually who you aren't. It's a strategy. And I feel like that's the graduate school of Enneagram because people get so excited about it. And then you come to the point where you're like, but remember, it's not actually who you are. This is not your essence. So, yes, I agree with what you're saying, as long as it's understood in the context of this is where you're going to go initially. This is where you drift to, but it's not actually who you are. Yep. Do you all think that the 
pandemic had a net positive or negative effect like on personal relationships? I don't know. I feel oh, like yeah, I that's, just that's a that's I, just, a fine I feel answer. like I survived a car crash. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah like, am I closer to people? Yes, but is it a good thing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I th- I think based on what I hear on the road, uh, it's negative. I you know, and you know why? Because people don't have tools. Yeah. And so they were forced to try to maintain relationships in ways that they had never experienced. Mm-hmm. And the people who had no tools to do that with, then that you just don't have a chance. You don't have mm-hmm. any way to speak a common language that isn't "I'm right and you're wrong." Uh, the enneagram actually is, you know, I believe this, but it it is the tool that both demystifies and neutralizes how we see one another. Because everybody doesn't like their number and everybody does in some ways. But the bottom line is I can say something to you, Joel, as a seven or you, Josh, I can talk about threeness and not offend you. And if it's heard without that context, it will be heard a high percentage of the time as offensive. And it's that one step away from how you're doing life that neutralizes very Hard things to hear and hard things to say. Well, it's a good question. Um, just building off what Suzanne said, I think the the two mistakes that we get into, and I'm just going to speak at, in terms of Nashville. So whether this translates everywhere, I don't know. But um, the two unhealthy kinds of relationships that I observe in my own life and in the life of others as the relationships that are transactional. So what does, what does this person have to offer me? And you talk about people operating in uh, very clever ways in which they don't even realize they're doing that. The transactional nature of relationships in American culture is formidable. It is really, really fascinating to watch once you know to watch for it. The other mistake that people make was exacerbated by COVID, which is, well, I'm going to move closer to people who are just like me. And the mistake I've seen, and I know Brene Brown has been helping us recognize, but the mistake that I've seen at a local level is whether you were progressive or conservative, that had nothing to do with how tribal you were. Because again, our, our church is very socially, politically diverse. I saw the Democrats in our church basically kind of form an alliance. And I saw the the MAGA folks make an alliance. And then I kind of saw that, you know, the, the Reagan Republicans, the more gentler Republican, they kind of made an alliance. And so it felt like during COVID, our church became like a, a system of tribes that kind of existed in the same soil, but weren't really bumping into each other because they could control who they were around where before COVID it's, it's harder to control who you're around. And so in that sense, I do think COVID made it worse. Is it better now that COVID is definitely, you know, I have, do you think it's better because you led, you were aware enough to lead them away from that. I'm in my camp and you stay in yours and I, I think Pete, there were people in our church who were not interested in being outside of their tribe because let's be honest, sometimes the little tribe feels good, yeah. right? It feels good to have an opponent. It feels good to make fun of the other side. It feels good. Like there's something about it that's like satisfying in the moment. It's like eating Doritos. Like, yeah, it feels good in the moment, but man, you're going to pay for it later. You're going to pay for it later. And I, I, I mean, I, every week in front of these people, I have been talking about this. Like, I don't care if this shrinks our church. We are not going to be a church that participates in the tribal bifurcation yeah. of American society because it's not the gospel. It's antithetical to the story of Jesus who welcomed a guy who worked for the government and sold out his own people. And then he had the guys who wanted to blow everything up and you should be able to bring a gun into church. Like the 12 apostles themselves were diverse. 
Um, so I do think it's gotten better now that we're around each other. In our particular church, uh, Sunday morning Bible class is a big deal. And, you know, six years ago, that's boring. But guess what? You can really bring some healing together when you get people in a room together and talk about hard things in a responsible way. Um, but the the folks that um, that we lost during COVID were not interested in getting outside of their tribe. Mm-hmm. And I hate it, but uh, the folks who stayed with us and the folks who have come since, I think they recognize there has to be more than me and helping my tribe win the culture wars. One of the things I've talked about from my work and my position in the world is the sense that people, the sense of belonging that people get in those tribes. Mm-hmm. And I think people pretend to believe things they don't even believe to Absolutely. belong somewhere. And then you they talk pick, yourself into it. Yep. Yeah. By picking up the language so that yes. you can, I think that's happening yes. a lot. Yes. Uh, the January 6th stuff is yep. a great example of that. Like people buying into conspiracy theories and when you just press a little bit about data and facts and it's just pure emotion right there back to logic there's no logic there's no in the courtroom evidence spirit of things like there's none of that yeah yeah you used a term a minute ago and you included it in your little info sheet that you gave us and i was hesitant i was like well we're probably not gonna talk about that but you mentioned culture wars and, yes. And in this talk. And then the the fact yeah. that we're combining everything that we're talking about right here with good anagram work with the simple secret, which by the way, the is it called the subtitle? It it's you know, mm-hmm. choosing love and culture of hostility. Mm-hmm. It just all all fits. It all fits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, culture war is big business, right? It drives it drives CNN and who wants to advertise on CNN. I mean, just watch the commercials of CNN versus the commercials of Fox. They are radically different commercials. <laughs> you know, CNN is like, you know, save the 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 Argentinian snails that might. <laughs> of course, I'm exaggerating. And Fox is like, do you have gold? You need gold. Uh, <laughs> Gold is the last currency for the apocalypse. Like um, I heard that so, this morning. <laughs> not not on that news station, but I did hear yeah. that this morning. But the the culture wars uh, in religious context, when that's talked about, it really goes back to the Jerry Falwell kind of rise of the early '80s, which was a very strategic part of the Reagan strategy. Who was not a conservative Christian by any measurement. You know, I'm not and I'm not making a comment on him as a president at all. I'll let smarter people do that. But uh, he was not a conservative Christian. And yet he was really intelligent about how to appeal to to conservative Christians based on Supreme Court debates about abortion, all of this. Right. So what's happened over the last 30 years is there's this real culture war politically Um in which uh, bases are being recruited. So in the Democratic Party, obviously, it's the black church, it's progressive Protestants, it's progressive Catholics, and then the Republican Party, it's conservative Protestants, it's conservative Catholics, it's conservative Jews. And uh, yeah, we, we are constantly, this is what I always encourage our church is to recognize you are daily being recruited to wear the jersey of a side that is not interested exactly in the same things that Jesus was interested in. And it doesn't mean we don't vote. I'm not a conscientious objector. It doesn't mean we don't participate in culture, but it it means we refuse to put on the jerseys and give our allegiance to these tribal identities that, that, that just need our numbers because they need our votes. My dad used to say, there are times Suzanne, when it's okay to play the game as long as you know you're playing. Mm. Mm. And I think what's happening is people are playing, but they don't know they're playing. They don't know they're playing. And it's a dangerous game. 
And and another way to say that your dad is really smart. They don't know they're being played. That's right. That is correct. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it is very uh, seductive, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I I think we all three would say that we get it that we are blessed that we've had the educational opportunities that we've had and the life opportunities to learn life lessons that we've had and all the tools that we have. And I think part of what we try to do on the podcast is share tools and the perspective of tools for people to do life better for them. And I don't know how you do it if you don't get to have conversations like this and you don't have a growing edge that other people feed and lead you beyond, then I I think our expectations are very high and it's not fair to expect that they be met. Amen. Well said. Um, One of the things I still would like to talk about, and that is uh, you talked about loving the poor and you said there are at least four different myths. Mom, you got to talk in the mic. I'm sorry. You said there are at least four different myths people live by. And this is, this is not just specific to your book, but you name them, I am what I do, work and vocation. I am what others think and say about me, perception. I am what I have, materialism and consumerism. I am most satisfied when I'm comfortable, security. And the thing that I want people to hear about that and that I'd love to hear you talk about is your choice to use the word myth instead of lie. Because a lot of folks who say Hmm. these things say there are four lies, not there are four myths. And lie creates pushback and myth invites curiosity. Yeah. 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 I think, um, I, man, I think, (laughs) I think you just answered it. I think I, as a three go to nine so quickly that I've had to learn how to be gentle over the years, as you pointed out. So there are just some natural shortcuts that threes have to disarming people. And you're right. Lie is, again, it's, it's black and white. It's good versus bad. It's winning and losing. It's, it's this, this very kind of decided language where myth is evokes curiosity. Um, And myths never totally go away. Right. Lies in Christian vernacular is like, well, it's something to be defeated and dealt with. But myths are always kind of like, oh, it's back again. Hello, my friend. Hello, my myth friend. Mm-hmm. Like you can you can live here, but but you don't get to to run things. So I think you're exactly right. Um, it's worth exploring, whereas a lie is meant to be defeated. Right. Do you all think each Enneagram number has a a lean towards one of those myths? Yes. Absolutely. And I've given it zero thought, but yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, y'all are on the spot now. Now's the, now's the time. Well, for my number, I, you know, what I try to teach uh, is what other people think of you is none of your business. Mm. And that's because I've spent so much time making what other people think of me my business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I yeah. knew what Joel protects me from, I probably wouldn't teach. Yeah. You know, he keeps, uh, he protects me from all of the really mean stuff. If it's way out there, then he shares it with me so we can kind of have a laugh. But if I had to carry all of that, it would change who I am as I Hmm. teach. It, It wouldn't change me at home. Well, yeah, I guess it would there too. But it would lead me to teaching so that people would like me instead of teaching what people need to hear. Mm. And preachers kind of get a pass on that. You do, because you know <laughs> what you're teaching and preaching about is countercultural, <laughs> and so does your audience, and so yeah. you get a break. Yeah, we do get a pass. I think we get a pass over the long haul if they believe that we love them and we're not trying to control them. A lot of preachers who are authoritarian are trying to control people. That only works for a couple of weeks. And then people smell it and they sense it. But if they really believe that you're for them, that you want to be with them, then you do get to say those hard things. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we should just 
schedule and a follow-up right away. Let's do it. Let's do it. And we'll do it in person in Nashville. And we'll, Joel is really interested in us being there. I need to get back to that. Let's go. All right. Let's go. Bless you, friend. All right. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Appreciate you.